Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, you all found us fine. Seems like you are comfortable, and bellies are full of donuts and hands full of coffee. So that means it's going. I'm going to have to work extra hard to keep your attention this morning. But that's all right. I hope that you had a great week, and uh, we're once again uh, back in the study of sanctification and looking again, once again, third third week in a row on how do I change. And uh, this week we're going to turn a corner and actually start with. What begins the change? What, uh, how do I begin to enact the, 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 the change that God desires in my behavior and in, most importantly in my own heart? So uh, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We will get there this time, I promise. Last week I got a little lengthy. And as you're turning there, let me open up a word of prayer. I know we just prayed, but I need this prayer. So <laughs> if you don't mind, let's take a moment, just pause. Thank you, Father, for the privilege to be in your word. Thank you for your kind care and your grace to lead us through this last week. Um, Lord, we are in a journey that is uh, about making progress spiritually to grow in holiness and in Christ-likeness. Lord, I pray that we won't grow discouraged. There might be someone here this morning already discouraged about... Uh, sin that's been present and it's in their mind it's on their heart they they've confessed it to you lord but uh i pray that you would give them encouragement this morning from the passages that we'll look at thank you lord that you are a god who's uh infinitely more willing to forgive us than we are even to confess your forgiveness is um given to us on the merits of jesus and his finished work and we gratefully claim that thank you for that we pray that you bless our time in the word this morning and we ask this in christ's name amen if you've ever had the experience of trying to convince someone to give up a sin or a sinful behavior and instead take on righteous behavior, you'll find that this illustration kind of holds up pretty well. Um, it's like trying to, convince some, trying to convince a toddler to give up their favorite toy. Have you ever tried to do that with a child? Try to give, get a child who's got this maybe a special teddy bear that they do everything with. I mean, this teddy bear sleeps with them. It plays with them. It builds in the sandbox with them. I mean, it goes to the bath time with them. I mean, everything that they do, they do with this teddy bear. And uh, nothing can coax that teddy bear from the clutches of that two-year-old. I mean, he's not going to voluntarily surrender it up to you because he adores it. it. It means the world to him. I mean, he delights in it. He gets a sense of happiness and comfort from this special toy. He has an irrational connection with this thing. I mean, he feels like this because of the memories and experiences he has with it, he's got this strange connection with this thing that's incapable, really, of loving him back. Even the disgusting characteristics of this bear don't matter to him. It can have a missing eye, soiled clothes. It can smell like urine and dried slobber. But it doesn't matter because it's, his heart has latched onto it, and it's precious and dear to him. And he's defensive of this bear. He's not, going to, he's not willing to listen to your reasonable appeals that this bear is foul-smelling and filthy and disgusting. It's falling apart. And it just needs a good, decent Christian burial. <laughs> as long as that one bear has this strange, inexplicable power over his heart, he's not ever going to love another bear. Nothing's going to pry that bear from him until he has a change of heart. Now, eventually, toddlers usually grow out of that phase, and they'll lay that aside, and they'll follow something else. Something else will get their attention. And uh, those attachments are, quick, are usually short-lived. And we might look at that behavior and say, well, that's kind of adorable and cute. But when you see that same kind of attachment that, or an affection that someone has for, towards a favorite sin, 
and their belligerent refusals of your appeals and your counsel and their defensiveness and denial that this is a problem and that this is putting a lot of stress and strain on their relationships. No longer is that attachment to sin so adorable anymore. It actually looks like a tragedy. In fact, our love for sin is just like, our, like a love for a favorite toy. I mean, we, we toy with our sin, really. We, we stroke it and hold it close and coddle it and take delight in it. And we make it a ritual habit, incorporating it in every aspect of our lives. We become possessive of it. And nothing will pry that sin from our lives as long as our hearts remain infatuated with it. Our love for sin will dominate every other love in your life. Um, You will love your sin more than your spouse, your children, your life, and even your God. Uh, I was reading um, uh, uh, Thomas Watson this week in his book on repentance, and he he was quoting Micah 6.8, and he said, So dear is sin to man that he would rather part with a child than with his lust. And you see that all the time, don't you? See, see someone's love for their favorite sin will actually compete with their love for their family, for their spouse, for their children. They'll even withdraw time and attention and affection from their spouse and spend time devoted to enjoying their favorite sin. They pull away from their children and grow distant because they're secretly nurturing some hidden sinful obsession. They'll rearrange their entire lives and schedules getting around to getting another fix, another quick hit of pleasure from their darling sin. And you'll never likely see how dominating your love for sin is becoming until your whole life is burning down and every other meaningful relationship you've ever had is depleted of love. No longer do you reciprocate your love for your spouse and your children. Instead, you rob them of the time they deserve. You you take away their attention and the affection that they really deserve and you give it to the true love of your life. It's perhaps the hardest thing in this world to ever love someone in that sort of state. If you're someone who has to love a spouse and your love, the love's not requited to you, and to, you have to love a selfish person, it's difficult. Eventually, people get tired of trying to love you and the void that your life has become. So what's necessary is that we have to address change from the heart first. If you have any hope of change, like uh, 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 we're going to have to recognize that there has to be a change in what we love and what we hate. Your sin commands your deepest loyalty and devotion and worship, and it's slowly killing you and those who are around you. Your sin is dominating you. Even while it's enslaving you, you put up little or no resistance. You ever heard that term, gaslighting? Ever heard of a talk, talk about being gaslit, lit, right? Well, your sin is doing that to you, okay? Your sin is even now gaslighting you, making you question your sanity about whether you could actually live and be happy without it. Whether you could, even while it's abusing you and destroying your life, it's telling you lies after lie after lie that you're willing to believe. Now, if someone in your life is trying to tell you this and trying to say something's got a hold of your heart, something's got, got a hold of your attention and your affection, and it's commanding all of your life, it's dominating you, do not get angry at that person. That person's doing you an extreme kindness and love. They're trying to snap you out of the delusive power of sin that has upon your heart. And you need to listen, because your life quite literally hangs on this. You have believed lies, and you've sold yourself into bondage once again to sin. You've, you, it's already wrecking your life. It's robbing you blind, it's deadening your sensitivity to God and his word. 
And if you can even hear me this morning, if you have ears to hear what I'm saying to you, I'm telling you one more time, please listen to the word of God when it calls you to repent. Repentance is so key. It's important. And bring forth the fruits that are fitting and in keeping with repentance. You have to come to learn to hate what you once loved and love what you now hate. That's the key to change. A change of your affections. What do you love? And what do you hate? Um, John Owen said in his book on the mortification of sin, he says, let us not be more concerned. Let me put it up here, I think, for you. Um, is it not working here? Here it is. Let us not be more concerned with the trouble of sin than the pollution and uncleanliness that accompanies it. In other words, we, we get ready to change when we start to feel the pain and the, and the wrecking nature, the destructive nature of our sin. We, we start to feel like, oh, okay, now it's time to change because my life is falling apart. And he says, let's not be willing to change over that. Let's be changing because of sin's pollution and corruption in our hearts and our lives. That, he says, let's not call to the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy, but still keep the sweet, sin, sweet morsel of sin under our tongue. Another Puritan said this, Thomas Watson said, till sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. Thank God for the bitterness, bitter consequences of your sins because it's tearing you away and redirecting your affection back to Christ. I pray that you'll, you'll recognize that. The Bible has always told us that it's not about changing some external factor in your life that's going to be the key to initiating this change. The Bible tells us that the, problem, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, out of the heart flows all of the issues of life. And the heart must change what it loves. Only then can real change happen at the core of who you are. So we're not just seeking an outward change in man. Like we looked at last week, the human techniques are all oriented to change some external factor of your, of your life. Whereas the Bible zeroes its laser focus on the heart. And that must first take, take change at the core of who you are. So we looked at the means for change. First of all, we looked at human techniques of change. Today, I want to turn the corner and look at divine grace for change. Divine grace for change. There's always the debate, as we get to Romans chapter 7, about whether Romans 7 is dealing with a lost man or a saved man. And I, I'm going to just quickly save you the explanation of that debate and just tell you I understand that passage to mean this is a this is a Christian who's caught in a battle with his own sin. That he actually is a mature Christian. He he dis, he is uh, frustrated by the experience of this enslaving power to sin. Romans seven is the exasperated cry of a man who is in his own who recognizes his own need of grace. In Romans seven chapter seven verse fourteen. It tells us, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do, not, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the obligation to carry it out. For I do not want to do what is, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You can resonate with that? 
Ah, exasperating. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law in my inner being, in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war. It's warfare, isn't it? Waging a war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. There's a Christian man just denouncing his own proclivities to sin. He's, I'm a wretched man. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? And the answer comes in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, so then I'm serve, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So you can see how a, a, a Christian now lives the remainder of his life embroiled in a battle between two masters. <laughs> And he can't serve them both, okay? And he serves the law of, uh, law of sin with his flesh, but he desires to serve the law of God with his mind. So I'm speaking to you this morning. If you're here and you're in Christ, you know him as Savior and Lord, I'm speaking to you as someone who's felt that, that pull and that, that tug, that, that rending of your heart, that I want to serve God. I, I just find myself continually obeying the master of my flesh. My, my flesh takes command. It keeps ambushing me and seeking to take me captive to the law of sin. So the law of God, back in chapter chapter 7, verse 14, the law of God reveals to us where we have sold out. We sold ourselves back into sin, even after having been redeemed out of sin's dominion and control. Verse 14 tells us we've been sold into sin. That is, a Christian willfully, uh, um, deliberately, allows himself to go back into the bondage of his flesh. For the Christian, there is a bewilderment about why we choose to engage in this sin. This doesn't make any sense. And that's the point. Sin is illogical. Sin is an act of rebellion against an omniscient, omnipresent, all-knowing God, omnipotent God. You can't, I mean, you can't commit sin without being discovered, witnessed, and judged by God who sees all and knows all. But sin makes you stupid. It does. It, it, it's insane. You're, we're, we're willing to do the irrational, illogical, insane act before the face of God. In verse 15, um, uh, Paul reminds us that we do not understand our own sinful actions. He said, I do not understand my own actions. He says, I want to please Christ, and yet I serve sin. I hate sin, and yet I willingly trespass God's perfect law. Now, some people might look at this verse and say, well, that's because there's a compulsion. There's a there's an underlying, uncontrolled behavior that you can't control in this. And that's not, Paul's, that's not what Paul's saying in this passage. He's not saying you have a compulsion to do some behavior. He says, no, you're a willing participant and actor in this sin. He's not saying we should... We, he's, he's actually pointing the focus on the fact that we should take responsibility for when we sin and not blame shift and, and, uh, and, and say that it's our circumstances, it's the situations, it's the... It's the actions of others around me that induce me towards this sin. No, you personally make a a choice to do this. We willingly trespass God's law. And in verse 16, he he makes an admission of personal culpability. He says here in verse, um, verse 16, But I do the very thing I do not wish to do. 
I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. See, the law is not something that is to be lightly dismissed by us Christians. We might think that the law seems to have no place in your life, but it is a good thing. It's a spiritual thing, and God uses it to, to expose sin in your life. Right? He says, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Inside of you, and your unredeemed flesh, the, the part of you that is not yet fully glorified, there remains an operation of sin in your life. And pr- the principle of sin is fully alive. And so you have to understand that the enemy that you fight is not external to you. It resides with you and in you. My new inner man might express a desire to do what is right, but the remaining sin that dwells within my flesh still opposes my righteous resolve. In fact, I delight in God's law in my innermost being, Paul says. I delight in God, God's law in my innermost being. That there's a certainty that I have been sanctified at the very core of who I am. But however, my, in my fleshly members, I still have pockets of resistance that try to capture me and take me captive to the rule of sin. So there's this internal warfare being waged. So the, the reality of the Christian life and sanctification is that you are a genuinely new person. You have a new inner man. Your core has been completely transformed. You are a new creature in Christ. And yes, old things are passed away. And all things are become new. But you still reside and inhabit in unredeemed flesh. And until glory, you will be engaged in a warfare that will take and extend the rest of your life. So, you must not make provision or make opportunities for your flesh to seize upon you. You're in, it's like um, when you're in battle. If you're down, down range and you're in a, in a battlefield, you're, not, you're looking for ways the enemy might exploit to take advantage of your positions. So you have a watch all the time. You've got your head on a swivel. Um, the military guys say, watch your six. You know, you got to watch your six o'clock. They could be coming from behind. You have this soberness, this vigilance about your Christian life that keeps you head up, heads up, and you're on the watch for where your flesh might assume control and take advantage of you, and you don't, and, and to stay in the fight. Now, when we carry out this battle with sin, we're not carrying out this battle using carnal weapons. First Corinthians or Second Corinthians ten four four and five says the weapons of our warfare they're not carnal. But they're spiritual and they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. That God's weaponry is a spiritual equipment for the fighting of sin. By that, I mean he's given us spiritual tools to fight this battle. Uh, I say the spiritual tools are, we talked about last week or two weeks ago, we talked about the union we have with Christ. We have been joined with Christ in our new relationship with him. That's not a spiritual, um, pious statement. That is a literal reality christ has indwelt your life the spirit of god now fully has indwelt your life and now you have a tactical advantage over sin you have intel from the word of god that tells you about how the works of the flesh and how the works of the flesh actually stage themselves up to attack in your life uh it how it launches its assaults against you so it's clear that, biblically speaking, we should not be thinking of this battle with sin like we got dropped behind enemy lines, we don't have our kit with us, we don't have our gear, and we have nobody around us to help us, that we're somehow stranded in this enemy territory, hopelessly outnumbered and helplessly outgunned. The reality is, in Scripture's terms, we aren't just behind enemy lines, we are the dominant force on the field. The spiritual life, this inner man has been brought to life you now have all the resources and the full armory of heaven that's in Christ to fight this battle. Um, you've got the enemy on the run. Ultimately, the victory is yours. The battlefield will belong to you in the end. 
And the only way, but the only way you lose the fight with the flesh is if you refuse to fight. And you, and, and you uh, refuse the, the means of grace that God has given you to fight this battle. Just quickly, I have six things I'm just going to mention to you and throw them at you quickly. But here's some things that God has provided to you that are spiritual weapons that you use to fight sin in your life. First one I'm going to put up here is the church. The church is key and critical to your success in the fight. You're not in the fight against your flesh and against sin alone. God has given you a, a company of soldiers in the local church for which to help you and keep you accountable, to encourage you towards faithfulness and to keep the fight up. You have the word of God, which the word of God tells us that we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. We are fully apprised of the, the, the enemy's playbook is laid out open for you. You don't have to be surprised and taken, um, taken um, unawares by the assail, the, uh, um, the attempts of sin to overwhelm you. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of you. That's First uh, Corinthians ten thirteen says that um, we have no, no temptation that has taken you. Is, is, is all, he says every temptation that has taken among you is common to man, and that God is faithful, that with the temptation he'll provide for you a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. The Spirit of God gives you the potential to escape, uh, gives you the opportunities if you take them. Prayer, we have close, com- close communication with high command through prayer. We have discipleship. Every man who I've ever met who's been in, down, who's been in battle, who's been under fire and has seen his life narrowly rescued, always attributes it to a battle buddy. Somebody who watched out for him and took, a, took responsibility for him and in key moments was there to help him. You need a discipleship battle buddy. Somebody who can count, you can count on to speak truthfully to you and to point out where sin might be encroaching on your position and help you get back on target as you, as you uh, battle these sins. So those are some spiritual weapons, I think, that are effective tools. That if, you're, if you're avoiding church, you're avoiding connection, you don't have someone that you're spiritually in discipleship with, these things are going to hamper you greatly in the battle against sin. So what we need to do is we need to take a really imp- uh, focus on cultivating these things and um, making them priority, building up your arsenal to fight sin. The uh, reality of this week, I said we're going to turn a corner. We're going to talk about the first element of change. What do you need to do to change? What is the first thing that is required of you to actually begin this process that God wants you to, to, do, to, to undertake? And that is confession. Confession. We're going to look at a couple things about confession in the remaining time we got. Biblically, the word confession, the word confession actually is the word homologeo, homologeo, or to say the same thing as, is what the word actually implies. And it, it su- suggests that we should say the same thing that God says about our sin. So in, in confession, confession is a full disclosure admission of our sin. Not without dodging it, without discoloring it, or without dismissing it and its sinfulness. Confession is taking your personal responsibility for your sin. Not excusing it, not blame shifting it, not assigning fault to anyone else or something else. And the, the requirements for confession, I found just three here. There's many more. But scripture always begins with this requirement of confession. This is not an optional step here. Okay, It's required for mercy. If you desire the mercy and compassion of God upon your situation to, and grace to change, divine grace for change, you need to recognize your need of confession. 
Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. He who confesses them. Confession turns away the wrath of God towards your situation. Your confession acknowledges God is righteous and I am guilty. So much of Christianity today is trying to strip away the feeling that we should ever feel guilty. We, we're, supposed to, we're told constantly, shame and guilt, that's from the devil, that's not from God. Um, I beg to differ. Guilt is a friend. Guilt is God's gift to you to awaken you to his work to call you to confession and repentance. Guilt is something that God can use powerfully. He often does use it powerfully to awaken us to our need for mercy. Trying to cover your sins will get you nowhere, and it only prolongs and aggravates the guilt. You won't succeed in hiding your sin because Numbers, 23, or Numbers 32 verse 23 says that your sins will find you out. They will find you out. And Judgment Day will declare it. 1 Corinthians 3.13. And then Hebrews 4.13 says that neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open to him unto the, open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, God is going to call it out into the open anyway. So holding confession back is doing you no good. It will be exposed in, in the day ahead. And holding it in only prolongs the guilt and aggravation. Number two, it's required for forgiveness. You know 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. But you see how that's all conditioned on the first phrase, if we confess our sins. Now, the thing you have to notice there is the, the plural word sins. Okay? He didn't say if we confess our sin, but if we confess our sins. I think there's a the emphasis on the plural there means that he's looking for a specific confession, not, not just a general admission that, yeah, I'm a sinner, yeah, I sin, as if it's a general idea, but sins in particular, I sinned, I lusted, I lied, I, I coveted, I desired this for myself, I had an inordinate uh, affection for the things of this world. You're specifically identifying sins, and if we confess them in individual particular ways, then we find particular forgiveness for particular sins. And here I want to draw the, con- the difference between confession and an admission. An admission is different than confession. Would you agree? You can get an admission out of someone very simply by showing them the evidence against them. My, my, my dad's in, correction, in, in um, prison, New York State prison corrections and always has to confront inmates with sins that are done. And uh, all you do is just bring up the charges, bring up the evidence. And they'll, be, they'll admit only insofar as the evidence shows, right? Very often. And so admission is different and because admission is in, can be incomplete. It can be guarded insofar as what the evidence will betray. Basically, admission often only is nothing more than just an acknowledgement that there's evidence against me and I accept the charge. It stops short of a full voluntary confession that agrees with God in his assessment of my life and gives full assessment to my guilt. So there's five qualities here of true confession. If someone's confessing, if you desire to confess, these five qualities have to be present for it to be true and a true confession. You ought to think about this as next time you go to confess your sin. Number one, confession is spontaneous. And by that I mean... Spontaneous means that it comes forth from you unelicited, unconstrained, voluntary. Okay? 
In other words, you should not have to be smoked out. You should not have to be drummed out of you to confess. Confession comes forth from a heart that recognizes immediately, I have violated the commandment of God. I am in danger of God's uh, his, his judgment on my life, his removal of blessing. Confession should not have to be uh, something that is, somebody has to mount a prosecution against me and bring it out to me, bring it out to me. It comes forth voluntarily, spontaneously. Secondly, confession is self-indicting. 1 Corinthians 11. I don't, did I put these verses in here? Oh, yeah. Here's, here's an example of spontaneous confession. Remember the man sitting in the pig pit thinking about, I could go back to my father. I've run away. I've taken all that he has. I've spent it recklessly. And he's sitting there thinking, contemplating his repentance. He's contemplating his confession. And here's what he says. He takes, he takes a free and <laughs> voluntary approach to it. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And before you. See, he's taking personal responsibility. Okay? So that's an example of voluntary or spontaneous confession. Secondly is self-indicting. That is to say, you, you, you take the side of God in your, in your judgment, in your confession. You say, God, I agree with you, and I side with you in the case against my sin. The Bible says that if we judge ourselves truly, we should not be judged. So, self-indicting. Your admission of sin, if it's just an admission, just shows that your conscience is working properly. And uh, I like what Watson said about that. He says, knowledge of your sin without repentance is only a torch to light your way to hell. It only lets you know that you know, that you know you've done wrong, but it doesn't really enact, the con- it, doesn't, it doesn't invite the grace of God and forgiveness. So, true confession isn't simply lodging a guilty plea but sentencing a judgment upon your own sin. We side with the judge and sue for, sue for the prosecution against your own sin. God, I agree with you. What I did was absolutely wrong. Here's what your word says. Your view and your perspective towards that is, I fully acknowledge that my responsibility in that. Please, Lord, forgive me. Next thing. Thirdly, confession is sorrowful. Their sorrow is required. Okay, I'm not saying you need to ball, ball like a baby. You need to cry a river of tears, but nonetheless, there is a tremendous sorrow that has to be present. In Psalm 38, 4, for my iniquities have gone over my head, David says, like a heavy burden, they're too heavy for me. Does does the thought of your sin bother you? Does it bring sorrow and heaviness to your heart? Sorrowful. Confession isn't diminishing, discharging or dismissing your culpability accepts the full guilt and it brings tears and deep grief I just I've been obviously reading Puritans this week but he says Thomas Watson says if God will have God will rather have your tears than your blood he'd rather have your tears of repentance than to take your life for sin and there is a sin that is unto death the Bible tells us we'll maybe talk about that a little later on so be careful about that if you want to truly change, you've got to come out of the darkness and live in the light. All right, listen. It says, confession is sincere. David says, you delight in, uh, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. I want, to be tr- I want to live in truth in my heart, in the inner man. I want to live in consistency with your truth. You seek to teach wisdom in the secret heart. 
So there's a sincerity there. There's, um, it's not, you're not confessing out of a love for self or a desire to save your own skin or somehow to maybe if I, if I cough up what I did, maybe it'll invite the, the, kind, you know, uh, the kind reaction of the person I sinned against and maybe they'll go easier on me. Maybe there'll be some sort of mercy motiva- uh, motivation there to make sure that I have, um, I'm protecting myself. It's a self-love, a self-protecting act sometimes to confess. That's not what's called upon here. We just desire to be living in the truth. The truth gets out, and there's, there's freedom when the truth is in the open. So confession is sincere. Also, confession should be specific. And I mentioned this earlier before. Confession doesn't spare the specifics. It's confession of sin in particular, not just sin in general. Um, Origen, one of the church fathers, said, confession is the vomit of the soul. You just yield up everything that is just uh, that is destroying your conscience and, and weighing upon you and your guilt. Uh, we call it coughing up the alligator sometimes. Thomas Watson said it's confessing in the pence, not only the pounds. <laughs> in other words, it's not just the large things, the overarching gist of the sin. It's the specific of it. Confess all that is known, Thomas Watson said. Expect God to pardon. If you expect God to pardon all, confess all. Confession is like opening a vein to purge out infection. Um, Charles Spurgeon paraphrased Thomas Watson by saying, a man's repentance should be as notorious as his scandal. In other words, if you want forgiveness, there needs to be a full and open confession. I'm not saying necessarily it has to be public confession. I'm just saying it needs to be a full disclosure of the, of the full spectrum of what happened and how you've done that. And it needs to be done before God and soon and not, not, not forced and coerced from you. If you truly want to change, you've got to come out of the darkness and live in the light. You can't pretend your sin isn't a problem. You can't pretend you can just relabel it. You can just redefine it or disguise it or diminish it. First John 1 John 1.7 says, We must walk in the light as he is in the light. You've got to develop a love for walking in the daylight of God's grace. Your secrecy and your hidden sin is like putting bullets in the devil's gun. And that's how he's getting you every time. You're living in secrecy and you're living in under the cover of darkness. Coming out into the open and living in transparency and living in the open is going to be God's greatest grace and greatest help for you if you really desire to change. Confession is the first step towards biblical repentance which we have time to look at next week. So look at those five qualities. Confession should be spontaneous. It should be self-indicting. We're not blaming anyone else. We're taking the side of God in, a, in the case against our sin. We're sorrowful. There is a sincerity, not seeking to just save ourselves or have a self-love, a self-protection, but to really sincerely bring the truth out into the open and to agree with God about that, to recalibrate our thinking and our and our understanding about what God has said that should be true. And then confession is specific. God help us when we confess that these are, these are the characteristics of our confession before God. Father, I thank you for the privilege to be in your word this morning. And we know that change begins with an admission, not just an admission, but a full agreement with what you have said in your word is true about the sin in our lives. Lord, we know that the sin is like a favorite thing to us we we treasure it we prize it we hold it close and yet it kills us lord we pray that we would just recognize that you desire to take that thing from us and replace it 
with your grace and your kindness and help us to live in, in righteousness and freedom. Lord, it's a blessed thing. It's a wonderful joy to know that we can live, in a, live a life of a pure and clean conscience before you. Lord, for us who are here this morning, perhaps that is something we really need to do this morning is that we need to come out and confess our sin to you first and foremost, to acknowledge it and all of its ugliness, to acknowledge our sin and its impact on those who we've hurt, those who are affected by our sinful choices, and to acknowledge it and to not sidestep it or to ignore it. Lord, I pray that confession will be on the lips of every Christian here this morning. As we go about our week, may our change begin today as we confess our sin. We thank you for the promise that if we do this, you're faithful and you are just to forgive. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.